Hey, y'all, thanks for tuning in to the Weird One Podcast. This space, it's a collection of talks ranging anywhere from sermons from our ministry, creative thoughts, breakout sessions at things like Weird One Conference, as well as some inside scoops on leadership. We hope it helps you. If you want to keep up to date with everything Weird One, you can go to weareoneyouth.com or follow us on social at WAO Youth. We hope you're blessed. This extension follows the message, the gates were shut, and the extension, journey to Jerusalem. I'm really excited just as you watch Acts 21, Acts 22, the full picture of how they all come together. So we're going to pick up here at the tail end of Acts 21 to start. It kind of ends us on like this cliffhanger transition into Acts 22. Remember, Paul's been arrested uh, by the Roman commander and the soldiers there. He's taken into the Antonia Fortress. And so uh, he's arrested, taken in there. And although it sounds bad that he's sitting there, um, it's a lot better than where he might be if left with the Jews. He'd be in a probably dead state at this point, completely mauled and mutilated by the mob. Whoa, three M's there. Mauled, mutilated by the mob. Didn't uh, mean to say that exactly that way. So let's go here. Acts 21, verse 37. We're going to start the tail end of Acts 21, and then we're going to flow into Acts 22. So as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, remember that's referring to the Antonia Fortress, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? And the commander kind of pokes his head up here. Do you speak Greek, he replied. He's like double taking because he hear, hears Paul speaking perfect Greek, and he wanted to assume this of him because of the uproar from the Jewish crowd thinking he's a Jew. is just the way he was taking it all in. And so it continues here then. Uh, the commander goes, aren't you the um, Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, uh, nah, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. So Paul asks if he can speak to the crowd, and this is, this is like now the introduction into chapter 22, which Acts 22, we're about to go. It's Paul's fourth sermon recorded in the book of Acts. I want you to catch this here too, this phrase that was just made. It says, a citizen of no ordinary city. This is like a little Easter egg here. It's a foreshadowing of what's about to come in Acts 22. Paul makes this statement to the commander. His name is Claudius Lysias in that verse 39. And I want you to just kind of like, if you're taking notes, put it away or put it in your brain here. A citizen of no ordinary city, because we're going to come back to it in a little bit. But as the uproar is intensifying, I want you to notice Paul's response. He doesn't hide. He doesn't run. He doesn't curse them. He doesn't give into them and just become a part of them. What does the Bible say? It says that he looked to the commander and says, please let me speak to the people. Instead of going anywhere or just being like, well, you know what? You're right. I'm not going to live for Jesus anymore, which is what a lot of people do. And they just give up. He instead gets permission, the Bible says, here from the commander so he could speak to him. And the reason that the commander was going to allow him to speak to him is he's thinking like, these people are going crazy right now. I'm going to let this dude, remember, he's throwing off now because he's like, okay, whoa, he's speaking Greek now. Who is this dude? But I'm going to let him, a fellow Jew, speak to them. Maybe he can calm them down. Maybe he can sort of just get some clarity for us of what's going on here. I need to understand uh, what's happening. So maybe this guy can do it. So that's why he lets him speak. And it says in verse 40, after receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. And when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic. <laughs> so, so much for uh, Claudius getting clarity now, because before he just heard him speak in Greek, and now he hears him speak in Aramaic. And if you don't understand this, he does not speak. Claudius Lysias, Lysias does not speak Aramaic. So Paul starts speaking in Aramaic here, and this is the beginning of Paul's sermon to the Jews. In verse 37, he just heard him speak in Greek, and now verse 40 through the majority of now, like verse 40 of Acts 21 through the majority of Acts 22, Paul speaking Aramaic. Good luck, Claudius. He's not going to be able to understand a a clue. He doesn't have a clue of what Paul's going to be saying the entire time because he does not speak Aramaic. And the way that Acts 21 ends, um, it ends here. What, how does it say it? He said to them in Aramaic, colon. That's how the chapter ends. It's like a cliffhanger of your favorite TV show, right? You just finished the season. 
and it's like that last scene, credits roll, and you're just sitting there like, I want more. What happens next? Does she date him? Does he die? What will happen? <laughs> That's like a soap opera, right? It's like the season ends and you're sitting there. Thank God that we have the entire unadulterated, right? Word of God right here. The inspired, the infallible word of God. We can go chapter to chapter to chapter and get the whole story. But it ends in chapter 21. It's like this cliffhanger and then the credits roll. But I won't leave you here. There, hang in there. We can go right to chapter 22 now. He said to them in Aramaic, colon, let's go to chapter 22, verse 1. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. The crowd, when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. So in the same way that the commander, when he heard Paul speak in Greek, and he's like, kind of shook, like, whoa. Now the crowd hears him speak in this perfect Aramaic, and they're moved by it continues in verse 2. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I want you to notice that these details, we're going to come back to them again, are really important. How do you know? They've been said twice already. One time in God's word is enough. Two times, three times, you better listen. So right here, it says it, but also in Acts 21, verse 39, as we're ending that chapter in 21, before we get to 22, it was said as well. I'm going to explain more, but I just want you to take note. Paul continues, I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained, thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as, as any of you here today. He's like, listen, y'all think you love God? So do I. But I, what I want you to catch is he makes this statement of, about Gamaliel, and it was really important because they all knew Gamaliel. And that he references him, you have to understand, to give himself credibility. He wanted everyone to hear, listen, I don't just know the guy. I haven't just met or seen the guy. I was trained and raised up under the guy. Now, I talk a lot. I teach a ton about Paul and Gamaliel's relationship. If you watch the sermon, uh, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us and the extension, Cheap Gospel, which everything I reference, they will be in the description, you need to go check that out. It's going to give you a lot more about Paul and Gamaliel. But he continues. He said, I persecuted the followers this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I have even obtained, I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem and be punished. He was like, dude, I was a bad guy. He goes, I was hating on some people. I was doing a lot of crazy stuff. And I was going with the authority of the high priests and of all these, of all these Pharisees and everybody a part of the Sanhedrin. I had authority to go make this happen. So what is Paul doing here? He is setting up his testimony. He's going to right now let them understand, here's who I was. Let me now tell you about who I am. This is referred to in Scripture as Paul's conversion. We see this in Acts chapter 9. But I want you to understand now we're in Acts chapter 22. It happens a second time. It actually happens three times. Acts 9, Acts 22, and he says it again to King Agrippa II in Acts 26. He talks about his conversion story. Now, I'm going to give you a lot today on it, but I left so many details out because I've already talked about that. Three, uh, I think, important teachings that would help you if you haven't watched them yet. A sermon called Blind Faith and Booty Cheeks. Uh, go watch it. And then also some extensions here. Snake Eyes and Where's Saldo. If you go watch those, click those links in the description. They're going to help you a ton to understand Paul's conversion. Who was he? What was he up to? So now as I get into this, it's going to help hopefully explain a lot more or this plus that either way. What's unique though about Paul's conversion when we look at chapters 22 and 26 is that it's the documentation of Paul sharing here in 22 and again in 26, his testimony, meaning it's not, Acts 9 is the written account that Luke recorded of what happened as if it, Paul's going through it for the first time. It's, it happened. Acts 22 and 26, Paul is rediscussing. He's sharing. He's, he's testifying about what had happened in Acts 9. So it's very interesting because we can see his perspective in a fresh way. There's a couple minor details. If you look at the difference between Acts 9 and as we're now in Acts 22, 
I'm going to break it down for you here in a second. I'm actually going to mirror them and give you some parallel look at both of them, verse by verse. I'm going to go through it quickly. But I think uh, just a couple of things to take note as we get into it. There's minor details that are different, meaning Paul might have like slightly um, switched some of the verses around or he might have said the details slightly different than Acts 9. But I mean, I'd, I guess I'd even explain that this way. Like if you have like an entire day of work or school or whatever you have, and then you're going to explain them later, you might explain them in a slightly different order, but they're the same details. Or I might have told one person, it was an amazing day. And the next time I said it, I said, man, what a phenomenal day. What a dangerous day. Yeah, it's all the same thing, right? I'm saying the same details pretty much. But what's happening here as he's approaching Acts uh, 22 with the Jews, he's referencing back to Acts 9. One thing about Acts 9 is it has, actually has a few more details than Acts 22. And as I show you, the reason for that is Acts 22. Paul is resharing the story from his encounter and perspective, where Acts 9, it also includes like Ananias and other looks into the entire story, where Paul isn't going to include all of those details. He's really just going to mainly devote to his story. I'm going to walk through here, though, verse by verse in a parallel fashion, and uh, you're going to see as I read it, I'm going to be jumping back and forth between Acts 22 and Acts 9. Hopefully you're watching this. If you're listening, this will be a little bit harder to grasp, but if you're watching it, you're going to see right now both of the verses are going to pop up, Acts 9 and Acts 22, so you can see them at the same time, but you're only going to hear me read one of them, and I'm going to jump back and forth between the chapters to complete the story, but it's really unique here how the story plays out as Paul shares his testimony. So he's standing before the Jews. He sets up his testimony here. He's standing there on the steps of the Antonia Fortress, and he asks Claudius Lysias, can I speak to the people? This is what he wants to tell him. He wants to tell him the story of what Jesus has done. Let me start in Acts 22, verse 6, where we are. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. Now I'm going to skip to Acts 9, verse 4. He fell to the ground, or Paul in Acts 22 would have said, I fell to the ground, but right there documented in Acts 9 what happened. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Acts 22, 8. Who are you, Lord? I asked. I'm Jesus of Nazareth. I love that because in Acts 9, it just says, I'm Jesus, but he declares, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now Acts 9, verse 6. This indicates uh, that Jesus told Paul, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now that's how it says it in Acts 9, verse 6. But I want you to notice in Acts 22, verse 10, Paul actually gives an extra detail where we see in Acts 9, he asked this question, and we already read in Acts 22 as well. Who are you, Lord? But I love Acts 22. It shows that actually Paul, who at the time was Saul of Tarsus, that he asked the Lord a second question. Question one, who are you? Question two, what shall I do, Lord? I asked, get up, the Lord said. Jesus says, get up. And whereas Acts 9, it says, and go into the city, Acts 22, Paul clarifies, and go into Damascus. That's the city we're talking about. There you will be told all you have been assigned to do. Now back to Acts 9-7. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. So what is linear here in, in Acts 9? It goes verse 6 we just read, verse 7. It's actually reversed in Acts 22. Remember, that's where I'm giving you a reference. Uh, at the end of the day, if my wife, wife were to go, how was your day? And I begin describing it and say the details where I had this meeting, I talked to this person, I ate this lunch. I might start by saying, yeah, for lunch I had this. Even though that was like the second thing in my day, I might have said it first. So in Acts 22, Paul might have said what he had for lunch. Then he said the conversation he had, even though the conversation came before the lunch. He's just kind of sharing the story as it flows from his heart. So Acts 22 is actually going to jump a little bit out of order compared to Acts 9. And so that's where Acts uh, 9 is going 6 and 7. Acts 22 is actually going to, it's going to go to uh, verse 10, as we just read, then now verse 9 in order to make them parallel together. So Acts 22 verse 9, my companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. So Acts 9, 7, in Acts 22, 9, they parallel one another as you read them. And I want to explain this. They do not contradict one another. I think so many times we'd be like, well, 
Acts 9 says this is what happened, and Acts 22 says something completely different, meaning it could be easy to think that Acts 9 says that they didn't see, but Acts 22 says that they did, or Acts 9 says that they heard, but Acts 22 says that they didn't. But let's take note of what it says. It says that Acts 9, the men with Paul heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Acts 22 says that they saw the light, but they did not understand the voice. Let me break down what I mean. As far as sight goes, Acts 22, it clarifies when Paul is telling his testimony, he clarifies that they saw something, okay? Something. We're going to say a light. They saw a light. They saw something, but they did not see someone. So Acts 22 says they saw something, but here now we can take from Acts 9 that they did not see someone. So they saw the light, but they did not see that it was Jesus like Paul did. In Acts 20, uh, let me now explain that the idea of sound with Acts 9 and Acts 22. So there's sight, sound. Acts 9 clarifies that they did hear a sound, but Acts 22 t- teaches us and it verifies that they heard a sound, but they, but they didn't understand what it was. Do you understand? So it'd be like if, if in the other room I hear something, but I'm like, what is that? I heard something, but I don't know exactly what it was. And that's where scripture is clarifying here that when it says in, in Acts 9, it says that they heard the sound but not see anyone. In Acts 22, it says that they did, under, did not understand the voice, meaning this, they heard a sound, but they didn't know that this, it wasn't just a sound. It was a voice. It was the voice of Jesus. Uh, let me explain it this way. This will be easier. Jesus, in John 12, he asked the Father, will you glorify me? Not because not I need it, but I want the people around to know that you're glorifying me. And it shows about how, to, how a voice came from heaven and did so. Look at it, it says, John 12, 29. The crowd that was there and heard it. Okay, so we, we, we can verify now, right? They heard it. Let's now clarify. What did they hear? They heard it and said what it, it sounded like thunder here. They heard it said it had thundered. Some said it thundered. Others said an angel had spoke to him. So what's the point here? Everyone heard it, but not everyone could understand it. I think this is really important to understand as believers. These companions that are here with Saul of Tarsus before he came, became the apostle Paul, they're here at his conversion, and there's a powerful truth that we need to take in. God might let you see the light and hear the sound, but only those that know his character will see his face, and only those that know his voice will be able to understand that it's him speaking. John 10, Jesus said this, and the sheep know the sound of their shepherd, his voice. It's the difference between a sound and a voice. Just because God let the companions hear sound and see light doesn't mean that like Paul, they could see it was the face of Jesus and hear the voice of the shepherd. I think that's just a powerful truth for us to take in here. Let's parallel these verses. Let's continue. Acts 22, verse 11. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. I love that word brilliance. That's why I used uh, chapter 22 rather than verse 9. It's just cool how Paul describes it. And then I want you to see this. Uh, Verse 9 of chapter 9, this detail can only be found in Acts 9, not in Acts 22. For three days, he, meaning Paul, was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now back to Acts 22, verse 12. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. The reason I chose Acts 22 versus Acts 9, because it's the same thing, right? Acts 9 says that in Damascus, there's a disciple named Ananias. But it says here, he was a devout observer of the law and highly respected. I love this detail that Paul gives of Ananias in chapter 22, because it shows how thankful he is that this man was willing to be obedient to Jesus and risk his life to come. Remember, Ananias was the one who lays hands on him. Ananias comes and, and spends that moment with him. He's healed. He's, he's baptized. He receives the Holy Spirit. All this happened. And I think Paul's almost taking a second here just to respect and appreciate who Ananias is. I love that. Acts 9, it continues then after Acts 10 about Ananias. It goes to verse 11 to 16. You can only find this in Acts 9 as well. 
when Paul was sharing his testimony in Acts 22, he was focusing on his life with Jesus, whereas this chunk of scripture, verses 11 to 16 of Acts 9, it focuses on Ananias. But I want to give it to you just so you have the full context of the conversion story. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Okay, so I'm going to keep reading, but I want you to catch this. Jesus then responds to Ananias, and he wants Ananias to understand, I need you to know how important Paul is for the kingdom. He is worth something. He's valuable. He's necessary. This is why I need you to go. Why does he need him to go? But the Lord said to Ananias, go. Why? This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Well, he's in the midst of that right now. This story is continuing with his suffering, and this is coming true. So although these details of Ananias' reaction with God that we just have right here, like verses 11 to 16, and specifically I'd even zone in on verses 15 to 16 of Acts chapter 9, although they're not directly mentioned in Acts 22, as I said, if you go in Acts 22, and we're gonna have, we have to jump ahead now because the way that Paul just gives his testimony, to verses 14 and 15, Paul shares something very similar to what Jesus told Ananias. It's what Jesus also told him. And what happens here is after he receives his sight, the Lord, then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one. You get to see Jesus and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witnesses to all people of what you have seen and heard. Okay. So now moving on from Acts 9. We see this chump of, chunk of scripture about Ananias. When you parallel, though, Acts 9, 17 with Acts 22, 13. So we just went Acts 22, 14 to 15. We got to jump back up because it's just how Paul tells it. But I made it all parallel for you here. So although we've been recalling the same moment and the same thought, I love the details of Acts 9 when Ananias shows up. And I'm going to show you why here. Acts 9, verses 17. You can see 22 at the same time. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, which is exactly what it says in Acts 22 as well, but look at Acts 9. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you will see again, which again, Acts 22 says, receive your sight, but look at this, see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Come on. To be able to see, good. To be filled with the Spirit, great. It's the, it's the indwelling, the filling, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that keeps you dangerous. Not be able to see, I will continue to make it. The Lord will use me how he will. But to not have the Spirit, I would rather not be here. To not have his Spirit with me. I think even we have to understand now where even David said, man, wherever I go, you're there with me, Lord. How is that? The Spirit of the living God that dwells with us among us, around us, that leads us, that goes behind us, that is within, that directs us in every way. I love this. And be filled with the Holy Spirit. It continues then in verse 18. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. And I talk about that in the extension snake eyes. And he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. The part about eating, I know it seems simple, but that's only in Acts 9. I think it's necessary here. But I love a detail. Although Acts 9 has kind of more details overall, I love an important theological detail. Now listen, I ain't going to get deep in this. I'm just going to kind of leave it here. And you guys tell me, leave a comment or something if you really want me to go deep on this in extension on baptism. But I'm going to highlight baptism for a second here. Look at what it says. Same thought, but it's just in a different place when he's giving his testimony in Acts 22, verse 16. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up and look at this. Be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. This is something very powerful that's being highlighted here. The partnership between water baptism that is connected to the work that Jesus did on the cross, the blood that was shed on the cross, and the water, right? He says, now wash your sins away, 
calling on his name. So there's a calling on the name of Jesus, right? The pleading of the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins, and then there's the water baptism. Wash our sins away. Too deep, can't get into it, don't have time, but it's just such an important theological detail. Maybe we'll talk about it another time. So Acts 9, if you jump all the way to verse 26, it talks about, it records that Paul's he comes to Jerusalem. But when it does say it, what it doesn't say is he has a vision while he's there. Paul only gives us that here now in Acts 22, verse 17. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance. This is just like what we see in Acts, um, in Acts chapter 10, right? When Peter goes to Cornelius' house, he's on the roof. He falls into a trance. That's how he knows to go to Cornelius' house in Caesarea. Same thing here. I fell into a trance, and I saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. So although the vision isn't recorded in Acts 9, the result of the vision is recorded in Acts 9. And this is the last thing I'm going to do here as far as showing you back and forth all the different verses because I've been, going, I've been showing you them parallel, and I've been going back and forth between the chapters. From this point on, I'm going to give you this. We're going to go Acts 22 the whole way with some supporting scriptures, but we're going to stay in Acts 22. But I want you to see here the result of the vision described. So he has the vision, right? What was happening that Acts 29 describes as he's, remember, he was preaching in Damascus. He comes then in Jerusalem. What was happening? Verse 29 of Acts 9. He debated, uh, he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. So in a vision, Jesus is like, hey, you need to leave. Leave Jerusalem. He's like, I, I can't leave me. People got to know. They tried to kill him, Acts 9 tells us. And when the believers heard of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So Paul wasn't going to leave. Why did he leave? Because the believers wanted to, him to? No. He left because he had a vision from the Lord, and the, the Lord told him he needed to leave. So we see the evidence of Acts 19, the believers helping him leave. But it was actually in Acts 22 we can understand that he had a vision while there because they wanted to kill him that the Lord said to leave. So while Paul's in this trance and Jesus tells him to leave Jerusalem, he describes in Acts 22, the next verse, verse 19, his desire to stay and keep preaching. He's like, Lord, I can't leave. I want to keep preaching. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And the, when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. This is a reference from Acts 7. When Paul is there, he's Saul of Tarsus. He's holding the coats. They're stoning Stephen. Acts 8 shows us how he's going house to house and he's wanting to kill and prison, right, the Christians. He's like, listen, these people know how bad I actually was. Paul's like, they know my story. They know I went from death to life. They know I went from crazy and out of control to now I'm like a believer in Jesus. They have to see this. And Jesus is like, uh, yeah, listen, they might have ears, but they're not actually hearing what you're saying. They might actually be able to listen to what, uh, let me, how he said that they can hear what you're saying, but they're not actually going to listen to what you're saying. They might be able to see your lifestyle, but they don't care enough to change. So then it continues and it says, then the Lord said to me, like, come on, Paul, get it through your thick skull. Go. I have a bigger plan for you than just right here. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Paul knew exactly what he's about to say next to this crowd. Remember, he's there on the steps of the Antonia Fortress. He's about to go into the barracks. He's arrested. He's chained at this point in Acts 22. He asks Claudius Lysias, can I speak to the people? And he knows what he's about to say. Like, he knows that he is about to turn up the heat on this entire moment. And the crowd that was already in an uproar, he knows it's about to happen again, but he doesn't care what their reaction is going to be. He knows that he has to speak the truth. What does he say that triggers him? Acts 22, verse 22. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Oh, wait, what did he say? <laughs> he said that, that Jesus spoke to him. I will send you far away to who? The Gentiles. This Jewish crowd freaked out. You think that the Gentiles are more important than us? You think that the Gentiles are worth anything? Those dogs, right? They, dude, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles at that time was rough. Any sort of racism that we see between any, any sort of people group today is nothing compared to how it was between the Jews and the Gentiles. They hated each other. So I'm telling you, 
Paul knew by saying this, they were going to freak out. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. <laughs> so remember, this is how they were acting right before he was preaching. They're going crazy. He gets chained. He turns to the commander. Can I please speak to them? And then in Aramaic, he speaks. The crowd gets silent. He preaches this whole time until it hits this point, and then they go crazy again. The commander's sitting there like, bro, I let you speak so you could try to calm them down and give me some clarity on what's going on, not rev them up to a 1,000, like threat-level midnight, make them crazy, like hit the red zone in an airport. Like, why are you, why are you getting them in this? Like, they're all, what's it, like pants in a tiffy or whatever, something like that? Like, it's a phrase. I can't remember. Like, why are you making them go crazy? And also remember, this entire sermon that Paul's given is in Aramaic, so the commander can't understand a word that he's saying. He's just going off of tone and passion. Well, he hears the people start yelling. They're going crazy. He realizes they're ticked off. He's like, bro, oh, why'd I even let this guy speak? And it continues that as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken to the barracks. He's like, get this dude out of here before these people try to kill him, before they cause such a riot that we can't control the crowd anymore. Get him out. So the soldiers take him the rest of the way on the stairs into the Antonia Fortress. And then in verse 24, he directed the commander that he, Paul, be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. Now, so I want you to see this here. The commander is like resetting into the typical way that Romans knew how to get answers. I'm going to talk about that in a second. So as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, I imagine like Paul just getting stretched out so calm. Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Like just, I can imagine just like super chill. Paul asks them this question. The end of Acts 22, as we're going to finish here together, the focus is on the conversations that Paul is going to have with all of these soldiers. It's not only important, the same way that Acts 21, remember it ends like your favorite TV show season ends, and he speaks in Aramaic, colon, and it ends like very important into 22. The way 22 ends is not only important into how we get into chapter 23, but it's also the fulfillment of what Paul was just testifying. Remember about the trance that he had in Jerusalem? What was that again? Acts 22, verse 21, he says, Then the Lord said to me when I was in Jerusalem, remember I'm trying to preach, I want, it, I want the people to know Jesus. But Jesus said, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Do you realize that's right here in this moment now? Even though he's stretched out to be about to be flogged, what's happening? He's far away standing before the Gentiles. He's not standing before the Jews preaching at this moment anymore. He's in the fortress with Claudius and the crew, good band name, and they're all in there together. And he's having a conversation with who? Not Jews. Gentiles. You know what's crazy? When God has a plan for your life, that plan will be fulfilled. Not even that you have to go against it and you're trying to get your own way. Look at this. Paul was trying right before this. Where was he? On the steps, preaching to the Jews. What happens? They don't listen. Where do you end up? With the Gentiles in the back room about to get flogged, but he's now going to preach to them. What's my point? I think when we long so much to be in the will of God, even when we're like, I'm going to preach to the Jews again. God's like, no, you're not. You're going to preach to the Gentiles. Another moment, I'm going to go in the synagogue. Paul would do that. Preach to the Jews. No, you're not. You're going to preach to the Gentiles. When God has a plan for your life and you're so willing to just follow that plan, even if along the way you're trying to figure it out, don't worry. You might not like the flogging in the back room, but he's going to set you up to preach to the Gentiles. He's going to set you up, make that analogy for however it works for you. He is going to position you with the Gentiles. So like I said, in the typical way that any Roman would get their answers, Claudius Lysias sets this moment up where they're going to beat him and they're going to imprison him. They're going to do, put him in chains and do whatever they got to do to ask the questions and get the answers that they wanted. Except they didn't end up asking the question. Paul asked the question. What question did he ask? Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? It's like Paul's getting stretched out and he's like, I'll do the question in here. It says then in verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked. 
this man is a Roman citizen. The commander then went to Paul. He comes in and he asks him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. <laughs> Paul, man, he's just chill, man. He's just like so chill in there. And I'm, I bet you Claudius was just ticked. He's like, yikes, bro. Why did you not tell me this a long time? Like, why wasn't your opening statement? Hey, could I, uh, when you're speaking in perfect Greek, why couldn't you go, hey, could I speak to the uh, people here? I'm a Roman citizen. Like, why didn't you open with that, Claudius is thinking here? Like, that would have been a lot better before I'm about to beat the living daylights out of you right here in the back room. I think Paul probably is imagining the same thing. He probably has some thoughts, too, on the opposite end. He's thinking uh, two things. Number one, um, bro, I did tell you. You just didn't listen. I told you earlier, remember Acts 21, verse 39, I told you to remember this. We're here now. It was foreshadowing. It's now being applied to this moment. Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia. Look at a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. He's like, I did tell you, you weren't listening. I told you at that time, you just didn't fully take it in. The commander knew that he had already breached Paul's rights as a Roman just by arresting him and putting him in chains. Remember, this is what Agabus prophesied. He took Paul's belt, wrapped it around him. The one who this belt around your hands and feet, this will happen to you. Here it is, right here. He already knew Claudius is freaking out. Oh my gosh, he's a Roman citizen and I've I've chained him up and I've arrested him. He's completely shook right now because he's got him stretched out. He's about to just flog him and scourge him. He's about to beat him up. And he recognizes that already he's gone against his rights. But now he's about to beat him up. Although he's never seen a public hearing, he's never received a conviction, which means that's going to be even more illegal. So Claudius Lysias is kind of like, he's got the shakes right now. He's like, I can't, I cannot even believe that this happened. See, the same thing happened to Paul and Silas when they're in Philippi. Remember in Philippi, they were beaten, they're thrown into the Roman prison there in Philippi. The difference between Acts 16, that's where that takes place, of what happened there and now is in Acts 16, they weren't even able to declare they were Roman citizens before they were beat up, chained, and put in prison. So after they were beat up, after they were scourged and, oh man, after they'd be beat so hard they couldn't walk straight afterwards and they're in chains. Remember at midnight, they're singing the prison, the chains come loose and all that. After that, all night, what does it say in Acts 16, verse 35? When it was daylight, so the next morning, the magistrates sent their officers to the jail with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. So he declares it. Now they know. They're like, Shh. and threw us in prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. <laughs> Let them come themselves and escort us out. Why, why do you think he did that? He wants an apology. He wants to make sure they come and recognize what they had done wrong. Give me an apology. Shouldn't have done that to me. So clearly, if now we're in Acts 22, Paul had been in this situation before, only six chapters earlier. So he knows how to approach Claudius Lysias this time. What does it say in verse 28 of chapter 22? Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. Pause. Dramatic beat. My favorite verse in this chapter. Are we here? You taking it in? Paul responds. But I was born a citizen. Oh, it's like the famous line when Bane speaks in Dark Knight Rises. I think it's something along the lines of, I was born in the dark, something like that. That's what it reminds me of. He goes, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. <laughs> I'm going to break that down. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he released, when he realized that he had put Paul a Roman citizen. It, like, it clarifies that. Not just Paul anymore. Paul, a Roman citizen in chains. Do you notice how quickly these soldiers are backing off? You notice how quickly the tables are being turned right now? Why? Because he was a Roman citizen? No, we already knew that. That had already been established before this moment. What does it say? They withdrew immediately, Scripture says here. Why? 
because he's a Roman citizen? No, remember. The commander asks him, I, he says, I paid a lot of money for my citizenship. He's like, how about you? What does Paul say? It's not just because he's a Roman citizen. It's because I was born a citizen, he says. I was born a Roman citizen. Why did this trigger so hard? Like, why did they say they withdrew immediately? Like, why are they backing off so quick? Here, this phrase, I was born a Roman citizen, it comes from the Latin, which is civis romanas sum. That's the best I can do with my English accent here, but civis romanas sum. What does that mean? It translates from the Latin to mean I am a Roman citizen. Okay. I thought we already established. We said that earlier. Uh, we, I, I already knew that. See, what you need to understand is that in order to acquire this privileged position, Paul's family would have had to have been rich. They would have had to have a small fortune. See, although Paul already mentioned that he was from Tarsus, he didn't take the time to them or even for us until you get into it, the, the, the history and the study and, and understanding where he was and what happened and all that. He didn't really take the time to show us the importance and the, the notoriety of Tarsus and the Roman world. Tarsus, yeah, it's a Roman colony. It's, it's a free city, just like Philippi. Yes, it's also known for its universities, its learning, like we see in Athens or Alexandria. Tarsus was a very learned place, right? You know, as Paul was raised up, he studied a lot, and then he trained under Gamaliel. Like, so we know that. But what's most important to understand about Tarsus is that those that were born in Tarsus, they were born as Roman citizens, just as if they were born in Rome itself. They had all of the exact rights of somebody who was born in Rome. This includes, but is not limited to, the right to a trial before being chained, scourged, or executed, which is everything that Paul went through in Acts 16 in Philippi, and now it's what he went through or was about to continue to go through here now in Acts 22. So the Roman commander standing there, he shook because he realizes, I should have known this, or at the very least, I should have asked him more questions. But let's give him a little bit of grace here, a little bit of slack. He was a little stumped by Paul, wasn't he? I'd be stumped. If I met Paul, I'd be completely stumped. He hears him speak perfect Greek. So, okay, so it's perfect. And then he hears him speak perfect Aramaic after that. Then from there, he finds out that Paul is a Roman citizen born Jew from Tarsus that was brought up in, Ju in Jerusalem and trained under the, the famous Pharisee Gamaliel but he's also a follower of the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. Okay, so he is a Jewish follower, Christian, Tarsus, Roman citizen, Greek-speaking, Aramaic-speaking, trained by the Pharisee Gamaliel powerhouse, dear Gus. So you can see why he's a little bit confused. Earlier I mentioned that Claudius Lysias, remember I was like, he's, he must be thinking like, Paul, before I'm about to beat you, why didn't you lead with the fact that you're a Roman citizen? I said, remember Paul had two thoughts himself? And one of them was like, bro, I already told you. I never shared the second one. Can I show that now? Second one is what really hits me because I think part of the reason that Paul didn't lead so quick to share that he was a Roman citizen is because that detail was not very important compared to the more important detail that he's trying to get at. See, Paul was in no rush, no hurry to make his Roman citizenship the focus of any conversation. Why? Because he knew that he had another citizenship. He knew that he had a citizenship that was much greater than the citizenship of Rome or the citizenship of anywhere else in the world. A much higher, a much greater citizenship. The only reason that he referenced his Roman citizenship is because he knew inevitably as we can read at the end of Acts, in Acts 27 and 28, we knew he must end up in Rome. We, we, he said that. Jesus confirmed that. You need to bring the message to Rome. So he knew from Jerusalem he's going to go to Rome. Why does he bring this up? Continue with me because as we keep learning and going into Acts 23, 4, 5, 6, I mean, he's going to go to Rome. So he says this as a trigger to get into that point. But in the end, 
his Roman citizenship meant very little, nothing in comparison to his heavenly citizenship. So although he made it known to Claudius and the soldiers there, he knew that it, it didn't matter. So even though his last name made him rich, even though his Tarsus birth made him privileged, his training under Gamaliel as a Pharisee, it made him influential and probably even famous as a Jew. Think about this. He was willing to give all of that up in order to be able to effectively preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. To know that being a Roman citizen meant very little in comparison to being a heavenly citizen. Because think about this. As a Roman citizen, he should have never been beaten. As a Roman citizen, he should have never been in prison. As a Roman citizen, he should never experienced any of the persecution that he did. But as a citizen of heaven, he was willing to endure whatever was necessary for the name of Jesus. He was willing to endure shipwrecks. He was willing to endure beatings. He was willing to endure stonings and persecutions and imprisonments. Roman citizenship meant very little compared to the, the great glory that is, the reward that is, being a citizen of heaven. So as Paul reflects back on this life that he's lived, all the journey he's been on to share the gospel, following Jesus and all the people he share with, think about this. He writes in 63 AD as he's imprisoned in Rome. He, he writes what's referred to as one of his prison letters to the church at Philippi. Remember, as he once was imprisoned there, he raised up Lydia there. The jailer came to Jesus there. He's now in Rome, just as we said he would be, in 63 AD, and he's writing this, and he pens it back to the church that he planted in a city he once also experienced prison. And he says in Philippians 3, verse 17 to 21, he said, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I, as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, he's like, I'm feeling this. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things and earthly citizenship. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Although I'm proud to be an American, and I think you should be proud or at the very least recognized wherever your citizenship is, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then this citizenship means utterly nothing in the grand scheme of eternity. We have another citizenship. One that will take privilege and influence and all of that and throw it out the window because God is no respecter of persons. And we are the same at the foot of the cross. So whether you're from America or Africa, whether you're from Europe or Asia, it, it does not matter. Whether you're from the north or the south or the east or the west, whatever country you find your citizenship in, whatever city you're from, whatever state in America you occupy, whatever the laws, the rules, or anything are of the land, in the end, no one is greater or smaller. No citizenship of this earth warns that somebody has some sort of greater privilege than another, such as the way the Romans looked at it. But we all have the opportunity at an equal citizenship, another citizenship, one that was paid for with blood, one that has bought us, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6. We're not our own. And this place as I even sit in the studio and wherever you sit or walk or however you're hearing this, this is not our home, which means we cannot put our trust 
in any citizenship or any sort of position or any sort of categorizing or label anything that comes from earth, heaven is our home. And if our citizenship is truly in heaven and not here, then we must think differently, speak differently, act differently. The way we spend our money should be different. Let's not look at it as we spend, we invest. We invest into ministry. We invest into people. We invest into needs. People that spend are wasteful. People that invest are thinking about heavenly citizenship. The clothes that we wear should look like heavenly citizenship. The things that come from our mouth should be something that reflects heavenly citizenship. There's a lot of things when you start seeing yourself having another citizenship, you can start breaking some things down and rethinking some decisions. And I know I do at the very least. So I don't know what you put your pride in on this earth or what gives you, I don't know, even great excitement in this world. It's not that we can't enjoy the time that God's given us here and be fruitful for his glory. But if you put so much more trust in the things of this world than you do in a heavenly citizenship, then you will never even get to the place of enjoying that citizenship in heaven. We set our minds, as Paul wrote in Philippians, he says that many here are setting their minds on earthly things. We set our minds and our hearts, as he said to the church at Colossae, on things above. Because we're citizens, not of this realm. We have another citizenship. So Father, for those listening right now, Maybe they're far from you. Maybe some just need to tune up. Maybe some of us just need to recalibrate, refocus, reprioritize some things. I ask that we begin to think as citizens of heaven. I ask that we begin to invest our money, invest our time, invest our our energies on things that are building the kingdom of heaven. Because as, as it's been said many times in scripture, as the message of the prophets and the apostles was clear, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As Jesus made it clear, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Lord, we are a people that are called to see your kingdom come and your will be done. So help us to have Kingdom minds, kingdom eyes, kingdom ears, kingdom hearts that think as citizens of heaven and not of this earth, that build and prepare and ready ourselves for your coming and what is next and not just what is here now and fleeting on this earth. Bless each one. Remind them deeply that Jesus paid a high price. Holy Spirit, remind them deeply that Jesus loves them And he has made them a co-heir with him in heaven. And they have a great citizenship that's not here, but it's coming. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love y'all.